Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after Monday's election, Justin Trudeau needs to deal with the loss of four female cabinet ministers as he crafts his new cabinet. What are the government's next steps? Well, we'll talk about that. Jagmeet Singh seems confident that he'll remain the NDP leader despite the lack of seats gained in the election, but an op-ed piece begs to differ. Lawrence Martin from the Globe and Mail joins us to talk about that. And Ryerson University unveils a monument celebrating Indigenous teachings and honoring the dish with one spoon territory that it sits on. Is this a positive step towards the reconciliation we're talking about? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. With all elections, the speculation continues. You know, there are winners and there are losers, and what happens to the losers? Do the parties boot them out? Do they get another mandate? What happens? A lot of speculation about that, and we're going to get into that in the program, including what this government that was just elected is going to do and when they're going to start doing it. Uh, there's a lot of concern right now about what their agenda may be, when they're going to bring Parliament back, and just how effective uh, this Parliament's going to be. A number of different issues here. To uh, talk about them, we're so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Tina J. Park, who is a lecturer of Canadian nationalism at the University of Toronto. Tina, thank you so much for the time. Pleasure to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Let's talk, get into a couple of different issues here. Uh, one of them is gender parity. When uh, Justin Trudeau was elected Prime Minister for the first time, uh, he raised a few eyebrows by suggesting that you know half of his cabinet was going to be female and uh, you know why did he do it and he says because it was 2015 we all know that famous line right now uh he's lost a number of female cabinet ministers uh Catherine mckenna didn't run again of course uh, some others were defeated is gender parity going to be an issue for him or and a priority for him Yes, I think so, Bill. I think uh, gender equality and promoting women in politics uh, will still be a top priority for the Liberal government. And I think it's it's very important uh, to have women uh, who bring different perspectives to whatever they're discussing, you know, whether it is child care or climate change. Uh, having more women at the table will certainly bring different uh, views uh, to the discussion. Uh- past experience, of course, with uh, some of the other ministers that he had appointed already. Uh, mixed reaction and, and a mixed reviews on those. Uh, we'll set the Jody Wilson-Raybould thing aside for just a second, but uh, a couple of the other ministers uh, that he had with before had some concerns and some problems. Uh, whoever he appoints this time uh, is, is going to be a first-timer. Is, is that going to be a problem? The orientation is, to, to be an MP is one thing, isn't it, Tina? But an orientation to be a, a minister uh, is quite another. That's a rather onerous task. Well, Bill, there are some returning MPs who will be uh, cabinet ministers most likely. Uh, but I think I see your point about, you know, the lack of experience in general that we have seen in the past in the cabinet. And that is something I think uh, we will just have to wait and see because uh, some MPs, you know, may not have had experiences as cabinet ministers, but they have subject matter expertise. And that's very valuable in that role, uh, more so than just, uh, you know, whether they've been previously MPs or were in politics before. Well, exactly, and that's maybe stuff that kind of falls off our radar, but uh, the political watchers know that. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, even if you're not a minister, uh, there are committees that you sit on. You can be a parliamentary assistant where you're working with the minister and the deputy minister, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, nobody is sitting around there twiddling their thumbs during any parliamentary session. So you're right, the returning MPs are going to have some level of experience, aren't they? For sure, Bill. And I think um, what's really key here is that the Liberal government uh, managed to balance uh, the economic recovery post-COVID-19 as well as some of the ambitious goals that they have laid out. Uh, we know that uh, there's a lot that Canada could do on our foreign policy, on climate change, and you know even promoting women's rights around the world. Uh, we are looking at a lot of uh, crises that demand our uh, energy and resources. And you know beyond partisan politics, there are some global crises that demand Canada's leadership at this point. 
Where does he look first? Uh, when you talk about priorities, and I know eventually, we know the process, there'll be a speech from the throne when they bring the session in, and, and those things are all get listed. But uh, we haven't heard officially from, from Justin Trudeau since the election. I mean, the other leaders have had kind of makeshift uh, press conferences, uh, nothing from the prime minister. The, the speculation is he's working on these things that we're just talking about with his inner circle. But but where do you go? What's job one right now? Because we've heard so many things during the election, Tina. Uh, you know, the daycare program. Uh, there was the gun control issue, which, which raised to the fore in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you talked about the economy. Uh, we're not out of the pandemic yet. Uh, there's, there's a lot of challenges for this government. Where does he begin? Well, Bill, I think you're absolutely right about uh, the challenges that this government will face. Uh, we are still dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, so the top priority will be economic recovery, and uh, that requires cooperation at different levels of government. It is not something that just the federal government could achieve on its own. They will need to work with private sector actors as well as uh, you know provincial leaders and uh, municipal um, politicians to ensure that whatever they have uh, laid out uh, for uh, Canada's future in the next decade uh, is reflective of uh, some of the challenges that different industries have faced. Uh, we also know that uh, just looking globally, uh, we are uh, falling behind uh, when it comes to promoting global humanitarianism as well as uh, meeting uh, uh, green targets uh, and, and many others. So uh, Canada uh, really needs to um, reassess our, our priorities and how we allocate our resources and ensure that beyond just, uh, you know, helping Canadians get through the pandemic, there is a very concrete plan ahead for uh, economic recovery. There's always some skepticism, especially when a minority government is, is elected. They're like, oh, okay, we, we want you to, to be in charge, but we want some checks and balances there, which is pretty much the mandate from the Canadian electorate any time that's going in there. Does he need to get a couple of quick wins right off the bat to try to uh, instill some confidence? Uh, Bill, you're right about uh, the minority government having to work with uh, other parties, and I think this is uh, sort of the result that the Canadians uh, have uh, given to the government that, you know, um, Justin Trudeau didn't get the majority government that he was hoping for when he called the election, but uh, Canadians are, are still um, interested in giving him another chance, and the Liberal Party has a lot of work to do in working with uh, the Conservatives and the NDPs and others to ensure that um, their uh, agenda for the uh, next few years um, goes beyond partisan politics and and uh, really uh, it is one that reflects the views of um, many Canadians who may not have voted for the Liberals. If he's looking for a, a, a victory here, and I'm, I'm sure anybody in his position would be, I would think at this point, Tina, maybe the National Child Care Program might be not the easiest one, but the most uh, effective one, because there already seems to be some consensus among most of the premiers that, yeah, this is not a bad idea. Uh, so that, that one's, you know, to use the baseball analogy, probably on third base and heading home if he can work this properly with the premiers. And, and that would be, a, 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 I think, a big victory for any government to finally get that program going. Yes, I agree with you. Um, cheaper, more affordable childcare is certainly a top priority for many Canadians, uh, especially uh, families that have both parents working. This has been an ongoing challenge for many families, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. And what we need to ensure as well, Bill, is that uh, not only are we ambitious with the targets, but that there is infrastructure at local levels to support this kind of program because mm -hmm. it requires teachers, it requires facilities, and it also requires safe environment for our children to sort 
sort of uh, be exposed to, to new learning and um, and reorient themselves after the pandemic. I think uh, children suffered very much from the COVID-19 uh, with the masks and lack of socialization. And uh, some attention has to be given to how we integrate them back to, to where they should be uh, because of the effects of the pandemic. With the minority government, Tina, and we've seen this happen not just with the past one, of course, with the Prime Minister Trudeau, but past minority governments, obviously there has to be a sense of cooperation here. You have to have at least one, if not a couple of different opposition parties, not necessarily prop you up, but I mean, support the programs that you're putting through. Uh, nobody wants to go through another election, and in a year, 18 months from now, probably not even two years from now, after uh, the last couple of years, what we've gone through right now, uh, it looks as if the NDP would be, to use the, the phrase, the the obvious dance partner with the Liberals on this because they seem to be like-minded in things like, well, the child care program that we just talked about, uh, maybe even some discussion about pharmacare, a national pharmacare program. That was not really a major part of the Liberal agenda, but it seems to be one of the driving forces for the NDP. How collaborative do they have to be in situations like this? Are they going to be bold and, and bring things along that the NDP are going to be supportive of, or are they just going to toe the line and, and hope that the support is going to be there? Uh, I think they're right, Bill, about the need to work with the NDPs uh, and other parties uh, to ensure that uh, what the Liberals had promised over the course of this very um, quick uh, election uh, gets fulfilled in the next uh, few months. And uh, for something like childcare or other social welfare programs, uh, yes, uh, there are certain areas in which uh, the Liberals and the NDPs will um, find it uh, easier to work with uh, one another. Uh, but I think beyond that, uh, we also have to remember, and this is, I think, across all uh, political parties, that we're going through a, a global pandemic, and Canada is still uh, not immune from uh, the effects of the virus. And we're seeing the Delta variant disrupting uh, everyday lives in different parts of the world. And soon enough, I I'm afraid that Canada will also have to deal with the consequences of new variants. So um, this is a time when you uh, have to work with other parties uh, beyond, uh, you know, your partisan views and ensure that uh, there is a, a clear agenda ahead uh, that will make uh, Canadians feel safer and that um, that the government does whatever it's able to ensure that uh, Canadians um, get through the pandemic and resume uh, the normal way of life. And, and you're right, that affects so many other different issues, uh, well, cross-border traffic being one, and international travel. Uh, I know there have been some work on those in the last little while. There were some countries, of course, that uh, were not allowed to, to fly into Canada. As a result, they've eased some of those restrictions. Uh, but you're... you're probably bang on about you know the the impact of the pandemic and i i know that it, it got a lot of discussion the anti-vaccination program the vaccination programs are contrary on that too but the reality here is there's going to have to be some sense of cooperation i guess again tina not unlike what we saw in the first three or four months of the pandemic uh, back in 2020 about cooperation between the federal government and the premiers uh, because this is really under the guise of health care and public health uh, which is you know kind of a that's kind of the turf that the premiers have laid out and said that's our responsibility they had a, a pretty decent sense of, of cooperation in the first few months that seemed to, to decay a little bit with uh, some of the premiers breaking off do you get the sense that there's a, a, a desire right now to go back to those days and, and to work together on this to try to get over this pandemic well, absolutely, Bill. I think um, 
the need for cooperation between the federal government and provincial governments has been extremely uh, important uh, throughout this pandemic. And we know that uh, different provinces have had different experiences with the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, really, federalism and the structure that we have in Canada requires uh, constant cooperation between the central government and different provinces. We're looking at a, a vast country uh, with uh, two official languages and a very diverse population. And each uh, provinces and their premiers are uh, very much on top of the priorities and challenges that they're uh, facing in their own province. And not only that, with the uh, digital transformation and what we've seen over the COVID-19 pandemic, there is a greater need for governments to engage with the citizens uh, beyond just the election cycle. And I think premiers and uh, even the municipal governments are in a better position to reach out to the ordinary Canadians and ensure that this um, vaccination program works out, that there are proper uh, safety measures uh, for um for Canadians in different parts of the world. And uh, something like healthcare, for instance, uh, uh, really requires um, a vision and uh, implementation at provincial level. And we've seen that uh, there is a constant need for uh, more investment and uh, more resources uh, dedicated to long-term care facilities and ensuring that, you know, Canada's diverse uh, population uh, gets served through our uh, healthcare system. It's actually going to be one of the more contentious points, isn't it? Because I know that before the election was even called, uh, all of the premiers seemed to be unanimous in their desire for, uh, well, I think the number they came up with was $28 billion in increases in federal health transfers to the provinces with no strings attached. In other words, no qualifications, no, you can spend it on this, this, and this. They just give us the money. And uh, I know the government before the election resisted that, uh, but there's going to be a lot of pressure, I would think, right now, Tina, to move forward on that. I know Mr. Blanchett from the block said he's going to support that uh, i would think maybe the ndp will too so uh the, the liberals may not necessarily like this as one of their priorities but they may be forced into it yes bill i think you're right on about um the pressure that the the government will be facing the uh, federal government will be facing from uh, different provinces but we also have to remember is that canada uh, is in dire need of a greater investment in our health care. Uh, wh- whichever province you look at, um, they are uh, using outdated systems for digitizing uh, client records. Uh, there are uh, no uh, easy ways for different provinces to transfer patient records if a patient should travel from Ontario to Quebec, for instance. Uh, we know that... Um, uh, populations, so ethnic populations, uh, Canadians who may not be comfortable in English or French have no real way of accessing healthcare unless they have their own translator. Uh, and there are uh, many other issues that uh, the Canadian government uh, as a whole, I think, has to uh, reassess and, and reinvest uh, in our um, healthcare, which we're very proud of, but there is room for improvement and uh, pro- premiers and provinces are in a better uh, position to assess the needs of their individual uh, system. And I think um, beyond funding allocation, uh, the federal government, I think, needs to ensure that there is some sort of a centralized system so that Canadians have um, uh, ease of access when they're moving between provinces. Because even with COVID-19 uh, green passes, it's very inconvenient if you're traveling between uh, provinces to show uh, proof of vaccination. And this is something I think that the, the Canadian government uh, needs to work closely uh, with the private sector and ensure that there is a seamless sort of transition uh, from this COVID-19 phase to to a new normal. 
Tito, we're just about out of time, but i get one final question that I think a lot of people are asking these days. Uh, in previous elections, uh, it's sometimes been a five- or six-week period, period rather, between the time of the election uh, when Parliament finally resumes. Given the scenario and the, and the priorities uh, and the challenges that you just talked about, uh, when do you think these guys are going to get back to work? Well, Bill, I think um, I am not the uh, only person who hopes that they will get back to work sooner than later. Uh, there is a lot for them to do. And and really, this is a very busy time of the year for many Canadian families with, you know, uh, their uh, children going back to school and uh, recovering uh, from from the effects of COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, uh, there's no time to waste. Uh, so I would hope that the Liberal government uh, gets back to work and and make sure that uh, they work with uh, different parties and, and different sort of uh, um, perspectives in forming their agenda and priorities for the years ahead. Challenging times. Tina, a pleasure to have you on the program to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks very much, Bill. Tina J. Park, who's a lecturer at Canadian Nationalism at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Aftermath of the uh, federal election, of course, comes all sorts of speculation about who's going to go where, who's going to do what. Uh, even with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, even though he won the election, he's got another minority government, of course, uh, there is speculation around Ottawa that uh, that he may step down in the next year or so, a couple of years. I, I'm not quite sure where that's coming from. But uh, it's out there. Aaron O'Toole, well, he's in his own unique circumstance uh, after losing the election and not getting as many seats as they had anticipated. And uh, there have been a number of calls for him to step down. Story yesterday that a number of members of the uh, Conservative Caucus are uh, developing a strategy to get him removed. Uh, and others, like former Premier Mike Harris, of course, are coming to O'Toole's defense and saying you've got to stand by him. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is a bit of a different situation. Uh, he said uh, the night after the election that he plans to stay on as party leader to continue to fight for things like that he campaigned for in the federal election, like improved health care, the clean drinking water for Indigenous folks, and so many other things. My friends, I want you to know that our fight will continue. We are never going to give up fighting for you and your families. As we have done in the pandemic, as we showed you in this campaign, we will continue to make sure you are first, your families are taken care of, that your needs are met. That's what New Democrats are all about. Not everybody seems to agree with Mr. Singh on that. Uh, and there's a, a great thought-provoking piece in the Globe and Mail that's uh, entitled, If Anyone Should Be Stepping Down, It's the Likeable Jagmeet Singh. Uh, the author is uh, Lawrence Martin. Lawrence, of course, is a well-known author and public affairs columnist for the Globe and Mail. And he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Lawrence, great to have you back on the program. It's been a while. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, it's been a while, Bill. Good to be back. Hope you're well. I do, yeah. Well, elections uh, come and go. You've seen more than your share of them in your time. Uh, your thoughts on, on what happened here? Was there any surprise as far as the, the, the eventual outcome here with the Liberal minority? Uh, no, I think it was what uh, what uh, a lot of us were thinking. All you had to do was look at the polls, and the polls actually turned out to be uh, uh, pretty correct uh, this time. You know. Um, Again, the um, if you look at uh, Canadian history and uh, you look at the, the the strength of the Trudeau name, um, it stands above everybody, right? I mean, they've won. Uh, Pierre and Justin Trudeau have won seven out of eight elections they've been in, and uh, it, it's a measure of their success and the success of that brand. That even though Justin Trudeau beat the nearest rival by what 40 seats in this campaign you know he's still being dumped on because he didn't get the majority that he hoped for but uh 
Uh, but so yeah, but he scored about what I, what I expected. And um, you know, if you look at the uh, history of elections recently, uh, Bill, we've had uh, what five of the last seven in Canada have been minorities. So the idea that uh, uh, of getting a majority government is not easy anymore. You raise an interesting point. Actually, a bunch of them. It's a great column today in the Globe. But you talked about Justin Trudeau for just a second because there's been a lot of conversation about his likability. You know, this is not the same Justin Trudeau that swept into power in 2015, and there was, as a lot of people wrote, a second wave of Trudeau mania. He's got a track record now. Not a whole lot of people are impressed with this, including members in our business, in journalism and the pundits. Uh, and you, you raised a couple of issues about how their approach to this. And the, uh, maybe the most stark example of that, as you pointed out in the column, was that most of the pundits and, and the, the Ottawa observers were saying, well, you know, the common sense thing from, you know, with this going on, uh, if he wants a majority, is to call an election such and such a day. And it, it would be the smart political thing to do. And as soon as he did that, those very same people jumped all over him and said, what the hell does he think he's doing? Uh, it, it, is that a hypo- hypocritical approach, or does it really underscore maybe how they actually feel about Justin Trudeau, the guy? It is a hypocritical approach, and uh, I guess I, I might con- include myself in it because I was, you know, in my chatter with people, I, I was saying, and to other journalists, I was saying, oh, it's obvious Trudeau is going to call an election. Look at the lead he's got. You know, uh, if you look at the history of minority governments in Canada, the, the prime minister, you know, chooses the most favorable date to, uh, sure. to call an election to increase his standing. And and uh, the average length of a majority a minority government has only been a year and a half. In fact, so in fact, Trudeau's was longer. But then, you know, as soon as, as you say, as soon as he had called the election, the media jumped all over and pounced on the guy. And uh, it was, uh, he, he suffered a, a terrible media beating during the campaign. Part of this is a result of just media ownership in Canada. If you look at the print media, oh, Bill, about 80% of uh, print media in, in Canada is run by conservatives. They, hire, they naturally hire conservative columnists. So if you look at the majority of pundits in Canada, uh, the big majority are conservative, so Trudeau is not going to be getting a, uh, uh, you know, a, a good bounce from these people most of the time, and he and he didn't during this campaign. But uh, but but uh, there was a lot of hypocrisy uh, in in the attacks on him. Yeah, that's why I'm always uh, quizzed when people talk about the, the the liberal media, and I said, where is that? <laughs> uh, you know, you look at as you say the ownership and the columnists, and, and look, we have all, many of those people on the show uh, on a regular basis. Uh, they're great writers, they're very perceptive, but there's probably leading more to smartly conservative, uh, and there's some of them that are quite blatant in the fact that they just don't like Justin Trudeau, and so a lot of people don't too. But he keeps winning, Lawrence. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I pointed out, uh, the Trudeaus have won seven out of eight, and if you can name me any family with a, uh, a more successful brand name in politics than that, I'd like to hear it. Uh, you know, even that's even better than uh, Franklin and, uh, and Teddy Roosevelt. And um, but but you know, he's also and Pierre was this way too. He's uh, he's uh, Pierre was uh, as I think I wrote viscerally polarizing. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy was a lightning rod, and, and Justin has become a bit that way himself. I, I but but for different reasons. I think it's been that more was uh, was uh, Pierre Trudeau was a, was a, was a guy who just uh, you know stood up to everybody and put down everybody with some pretty pretty bitter put downs. Whereas uh, Justin Trudeau initially took an opposite approach. He was a sanctimonious, and I think people didn't like him for for the way he came across that sort of way. Uh, but then you know it's just a Trudeau name. 
I think, and, and a lot of it is a bit of envy there uh, because of their success. Uh, it stirs a lot of animosity, uh, animosity as well, but uh, not enough, uh, not enough to defeat him. And uh, everybody's saying, well, you know, he might uh, step down within a couple of years. We'll, we'll have to see. He could be in good shape to run again. But that, does that happen in the passage of time as, as, as the media get to know the individual, uh, Prime Minister? I, I get the sense, Lawrence, the same thing happened to a certain extent with Stephen Harper. Uh, they didn't like his style. They didn't like the fact that he uh, you know, had just a, a pretty obvious disregard for the media and for the, and for the, the journalists who cover uh, Parliament and, and the Prime Minister's office as well. And, and is there a point where you simply say that's just going to be reflected in the way that they write, in the way that they report, in the way that they, they perceive things like that? I mean, you know, does uh, familiarity breed contempt when it comes to the, the media and the prime minister? Oh, I think that's an excellent point. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned Harper, and you could go to um, Brian Mulroney. My God, he, got, he was really, he was really hammered by the media and uh, his popular ratings and popular popularity ratings were dismal when he left office and um you know Stephen baker was ridiculed pierre trudeau it took a lot of media bashing so it's very very hard i think it's you know partly when you've been around many years um in office uh, people get tired of you and the media gets tired of you and they, they want to take you down and uh, so that's uh uh, that's uh, part of the business. Uh, the media is, of course, uh, you know, positive stories don't sell in the media as much as negative stories. So <laughs> Which leads me to another uh, very, very cogent point in the in the piece here. Uh, you know, when when media and those who are covering election campaigns or just everyday goings on, I guess, in the House of Commons, have th- those sorts of attitudes. And if you don't like somebody, and I've talked to journalists who just say, "Hey, I don't like so and so," and I can see I did, you didn't have to tell me that. I can see it in in the way in which you've covered this thing. You, you're suggesting in in the piece today that during this election campaign, uh, and and even post election, as after we've looked at the results here, uh, Jagmeet Singh pretty much get a free ride from the media here and and from the public when it comes to this. I mean, notwithstanding the way that they'd like to spin things. This was not a very successful election for the NDP. Yes, he does get a very positive media. If you look at it, you get hard to find any really attack pieces or, or, or seriously critical pieces of Jagmeet Singh. Um, but he had a very disappointing day because, uh, you know, he came to power uh, and, and in the last election, uh, he, uh, he did really poorly. He reduced the number of NDP seats by almost half. And this going into this election, I mean, his polls were bright. Uh, um, it looked like he was going to pick up a large number of seats, and, and, and he didn't. Uh, he ended up with uh, what only maybe one more seat than uh, than he had going in, and so it was a very disappointing showing. And you know, he had a lot of things going for him. He had, had doubled the, the war chest financially he had in the previous campaign. He had a collapsing uh, Greens party. He had a unpopular prime minister. He had, as we mentioned, a uh, basically a free ride from the media, and uh, and he couldn't do better than that. And so I was saying in the article that uh, although Jagmeet Singh is a very likable fellow, and I find him likable, I, I think he's got a lot of uh, integrity. I think he's got a, a, a deep social conscience. Um, um, I think the the, the party, uh, but it isn't selling. It doesn't sell, and. Uh, and furthermore, he's nowhere in Quebec, and the party to be successful, as Jack Layton showed, has to have a base in Quebec. 
Uh, he's got a whole trouble with the religious symbols issue in Quebec, and they don't like religious symbols, and he wears one. Naturally, he does. Um, and so uh, when you look at the future of the NDP under uh, Jagmeet Singh, who's had two kicks at the can, who's just ended up reducing the party's representation, I think they, uh, he might be, uh, uh, the party might want to look at uh, his leadership potential in the future. Well, and it, it can happen quite suddenly. I mean, you know, when Tom Mulcair lost the 2015 election, election, a lot of people thought that he had a pretty good shot of winning. Uh, he went to a, a policy convention in Edmonton, I guess it was, a couple of weeks later, didn't Lauren? And they, uh, they they pulled the trap door on him. I don't think he saw that coming. No, and that was, I think, was a disastrous move because, uh, well, first of all, he had only had one shot uh, at an election, uh, unlike uh, Jagmeet Singh, who's had two. Uh, secondly, he still had a Quebec base. He still had 16 seats in Quebec, which are now gone. Um, and um, so, but yeah, we are in this one-and-done era with uh, party leaders sometimes, aren't we? But we saw this happening with uh, mm-hmm. Shields or the Conservatives, and now a lot of people, as we noticed, are already out to Aaron O'Toole's uh, neck. So um, it's, uh, I remember in the old days, God, uh, leaders used to last uh, three, four, five elections, even if they weren't doing that well. But now it's, uh, now it's different. The strategy is interesting, though, and especially the importance of Quebec for NDP growth. And and Jack Layton saw that, didn't he? I mean, he you look at the the lay of the land in that particular election, Lawrence, and you had who was becoming an unpopular prime minister with Stephen Harper, uh, a liberal leader that uh, even Quebecois did not like. Uh, they said, no, this is not the guy. And Layton saw that. I guess he he was able to read the tea leaves, and he he just kind of zeroed in and said, Quebec is is where we're going to make a stand, and it paid off in a big way for him. Yeah, but and, and you know, it took a number of years. I mean, uh, sure. Uh, several elections to build up, and then he struck gold in the uh, 2011 campaign and won an incredible 59 seats. And that was with the help of Tom Mulcair, right? He got yeah. Mulcair, who was a very popular Quebec politician, to enter on the federal side. Uh, Tom Mulcair won a by-election, and he and Jack did a tremendous job of, of, of building that, that, that party. And, as you recall, in 2015, they were on the edge of forming government in this country. Imagine that, the NDP. They're leading in the polls going into that campaign. and uh, But then the, the, the Trudeau, Trudeau popularity surfaced, and, and he overtook uh, the NDP and uh, Stephen Harper in that campaign and basically saved the Liberal Party, which was in third place at the time. When we look at this, though, I, when, when political parties do this, and you know about the, you know, the, the speculation about Aaron O'Toole now, and, and you've written about the, the, the stuff with Singh, is is the is it the fact that these guys are really turning their backs on the real problem? It may not be the leader; it may be the party itself. Uh, my perception is right now the Conservative Party has an identity crisis. I don't think they know who they are, or who they want to be, and and those same rifts I think are are in the NDP right now too. How far left do they go when it comes to environmental issues? You know, are you going to be, uh, you know, an Avi Lewis NDP or are you going to be a Rachel Notley NDP? And and I don't think they even have the answer to that. Yeah, you know, I found, uh, I don't know about you, but I found the NDP platform, uh, this campaign, pretty old hat, uh, mm-hmm. all, all the old, all the old, uh, all the old cliches, um, and basically, the, very similar to the campaign he, he ran two years ago, not a campaign that sufficiently contrasted itself from the Liberals, so that voters on voting day could, fearing the election of a conservative government, NDP voters could say, oh, well, I think maybe I should vote liberal to block the conservatives from getting more power. And it's not going to cost me that much from voting liberal because their policies aren't all that much different from the NDP. 
So that's um, so. I, I don't think Clayton. I don't think that Jagmeet Singh. He doesn't hasn't shown himself to have much policy depth. He, he doesn't seem to have a, a nuanced uh, knowledge of the issues. Uh, I'd like to have seen him have a have a more striking, uh, different policy vision than he did. And the same for um, uh, Aaron O'Toole, for that matter. He ran not a bad campaign. I don't think they. Uh, I don't think they should replace him. I, I think the fact that he, he he he's taken the party in a more direction. Uh, moderate direction is a commendable course. I think it's more stabilizing for the country. And I think if you look at the tradition of the Conservative Party, uh, there was Harper, yes, but uh, most of the time uh, they won majorities, the big majorities under Brian McDonald, John Deasonbake, going all the way back to McDonald, uh, with a moderate uh, policy that appealed to the center. And I, and I think O'Toole sees that, but he's getting a lot of opposition now from the Harperites uh, who want to keep the party further on the right. Well, I, I got the real sense, although he never actually said it in words, that O'Toole wants to bring back the progressive of progressive conservatives, uh, and there's a lot of resistance to that right now within the party. Well, I mean, you know, ever since uh, reform took over the party, uh, post Mulroney, um, the uh, the right-siders have been in control. Um they won. Uh, they won under Harper. You could argue that uh, they won because of uh, the very, very weak uh, opposition leaders that uh, that the Liberals put up. Uh, nonetheless, they won. Uh, they what they won uh, again. It was hard to win a majority. They won. Uh, Harper contested five elections. Won only one majority, but won a couple of minorities. They still have a strong base in the party, and I don't. I think it would be incredibly difficult for any leader to. To bring those two sides together, you know, I've been talking to people in the uh, formerly in the Peter McKay camp. Uh, they're not happy. Uh, people in the Harper camp are not happy. Um, and uh, but I, but I think that Aaron O'Toole is a pretty tough guy. I think he's going to fight like hell to stay in there. Uh, he won't be toppled over easily like uh, like Shear was. Uh, it's going to be fascinating over the next little while, and the battles within the battles, I guess, are the ones that, uh, that uh, well, that you'll be writing about, too. Great to have you on the program against Lars, and uh, we look forward to uh, all your pieces, of course, in the Globe and Mail as a public affairs columnist. is always thought-provoking. Uh, stay well. We'll talk again soon. Okay. I enjoyed it, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Lawrence Martin, of course, uh, celebrated author and public affairs columnist for the Globe and Mail. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, an update on uh, what's been happening with uh, Ryerson University, soon not to be Ryerson University, of course, and a number of other concerns that have been raised over the last little while. And, and this has been an ongoing discussion, debate for many, many years, for generations, frankly, uh, that has really, I think, uh, accelerated uh, because of the discovery, of course, of unmarked graves at uh, the residential school sites and uh, and the impact that it's had on us as a society, really. And uh, a number of organizations have, uh, and political organizations, for that matter, have decided to move forward and try to correct some of those wrongs, uh, Ryerson University being one of them. Uh, we all know about, of course, the, the statue of Eggert Ryerson that was uh, taken down some months ago. And uh, the speculation was, well, what are they going to do about it? You know, the, the university and other institutions said they were going to try to be positive about this. Well, uh, they have now a new public art piece on campus honoring the dish with one spoon territory uh, that the university campus sits on. Is this a good first move? Is this the, the, the sort of thing that we're looking for? A number of different issues are happening, uh, not just with Ryerson, but with other institutions and the Human Rights Commission. Uh, and to talk about all of them, we're pleased to welcome to the program Patty Doyle Bidwell, who's a, a, a native studies instructor at Dalhousie University. Uh, Patty, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. 
Oh, thank you for asking me, Bill. I really appreciate it. Well, Patty, given what we've been through, and I don't just mean in the last couple of months, but the last number of years where this was not an issue that was on the front burner, uh, are, are you confident that, that we as a community, a, a Canadian community and a society, are starting to move in the right direction? Oh, I think so. I think we're starting to look at the, like, for instance, with Ryerson, his, he was an architect of the residential school system, and I don't think people knew that, uh, generally speaking, and I think that understanding the whole story of history, like what the politicians and the government leaders did to First Nations people in the past, is very important. And we had the same debate in Halifax over Edward Cornwallis's statue because he had, of course, put a bounty on the heads of Mi'kmaq men, women, and children and paid money to people who brought in scalps of us. And so the park where his statue was was removed and it was renamed the peace and friendship park in honor of our treaty so you know but i think it's still important not to hide these guys away i I don't i think we need to know the whole history and have an understanding of what role they played in the oppression and genocide of indigenous people so i think that's really important as well well, I'm, I'm glad, glad Ryerson is doing that. I'm, I'm glad you put that in perspective because you've seen some of the criticisms, and I've certainly heard some of it from uh, listeners uh, every time we do a segment like this, and I anticipate it's going to happen again, is that this oh, is really okay. an attempt just to erase history, Canadian history, and how can you just you know, wipe out uh, John A. MacDonald? I don't think anybody's suggesting that at all. Uh, what we're no, suggesting I'm is, not is that... Suggesting that. No, and I, I don't know that I, any of the people we've talked to in the program have suggested that. It's a matter of let's let's teach the history here. Uh, you know, yes. I, I mentioned on the program in the past, Patty, I mean, I, I yes. was raised in the ele- Catholic elementary school system. I never heard anything about residential <laughs> schools. What, what I did hear, though, and this is going back a few years when I was in elementary school, uh, was that you know, the, the Catholic Church was actually sending missionaries even into this country to try to, to you know, bring, you know, Christianity. To, and, and we thought, well, and, and it was all under the guise that this is a good thing, you know, because yes, that's, and, how, and, that's and, how they spun it. And, of course, when you're seven yeah. years old, you, you buy into that. Uh, we weren't taught the, the whole story of Canadian history, and I think that's the root problem here, isn't it? Yes, I think so. And I went to a Canadian, I'm sorry, Catholic school from grade primary to grade 12, and all we learned about the missionaries, the Catholic missionaries that came here, was that they were good, holy men who were trying to convert the heathen, pagan savages. And they were martyred for their good work. And I remember sitting in class feeling extremely ashamed over what they were teaching us. But I never knew about, I never was taught about residential schools, um, and the only reason I knew about it is because my mother went to Shuby. And uh, so my thing is, is that we need to know the whole history, not just a, you might want to call it a whitewash history or um, a limited version of history, but we need to know the whole story. And even if they hadn't removed the Cornwallis statue, for instance, which they eventually, there was a committee that made that decision for Halifax Regional Municipality, that we need, you know, one idea that was, um, floated was that keep the statue there, but then put up plaques that explain his role in the oppression and genocide of Mi'kmaq people. So I think we need to understand both parts of that history. And I think right now, universities in particular, at least from my understanding, because I work at one, I'm more um, in tune to that. I know, well, I know what's happening in the school system is to try to expand the history and 
tell the whole story. And I think that's very, very important. Um, but I think some of the, I noticed that some of the names, like in Toronto or Halifax, like I'll just say Cornwallis, like some of the names have been changed for Cornwallis, like the schools and stuff that were named after him. Um, because people need to understand that it's like, it's like if you named a school Hitler Junior High. It has that same kind of oomph, mm-hmm. right? That same kind of pain. And we see when we see people honored for what they've done. I think that they need to be, you know, in one level respected for their position, but at the same at the same time they have to be held accountable, historical account for what they did to us. And I think the whole story needs to be told. And and I know the defense that is often raised, and I'm getting a little tired of hearing about it, is that was a different time and a different place. Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> willful, willful ignorance is not an, a re, an excuse for things like this. I mean, some of the quotes, and I, I have the utmost respect for John A. McDonald for the work that he did. I've re- read a number of books, not just about him, but about historical times at that time and, and yeah. the hard work that he had to deal with about, with the British Parliament and so many others to gain confederation for this country, and he's to be applauded right. for that. But I've also yeah. seen some of the quotes he made about Aboriginal people. And it was not even yeah. about, as you know, Patty, it wasn't even about assimilation. He wanted them crushed. Yes. And, and he was it quite blatant about, about that. And it yeah. wasn't just with residential schools. It was a number of different things. I mean, he basically starved a number of people. You know, and they used them in, in, in science experiments, for God's sakes, Aboriginal yes, people. Uh, and, and on and on and on. But what, that story needs to be told. Those stories need to be told. Well, one of the things with the Indian Act, for instance, that was passed in 1876, it was a conglomeration of different legislative instruments that dealt with Indigenous people. And the whole point of the Indian Act was to not just assimilate, but, well, I would say destroy us, like destroy our way of life, destroy our way of governance, destroy our spiritual beliefs. I mean, it was even illegal under the Indian Act for us to perform any of our traditional ceremonies or sing our songs or anything like that. It was against the law. If you were told, if you were singing a Mi'kmaq song, they could come and take you to jail. Um, so there was, um, and then of course, Duncan Campbell Scott, who was the De- deputy superintendent of Indian affairs in the early 1900s to mid 1920s, you know, he made it clear. He says, we will continue until there with the residential school system until there is not a single Indian left in the body politic. So they were very clear on what they wanted to do. And the great thing about those times is, like you said, you find quotes that John A. McDonald said, is they wrote everything down. So mm-hmm. it's all in the archives. It's all there if you want to go look for it. And uh, so there's been some really great books written about the residential school, for instance, like John Malloy wrote a book called A National Crime. And um, Isabel Knockwood wrote the book Out of the Depths. So there's information out there, as well as the TRC, that explored and brought forward all of this information. So, and yeah, was, you could say, yes, it was different times. There's no concept of human rights at that time when people would say, well, we can't apply 21st century human rights law to 1876 Canada. Um, but the thing is, is that if it was all, only in the past, then that would be one thing, but it's not. I mean, the impacts are still felt. Um, the human rights, I know Ontario Human Rights is looking at a policy to look at the naming. Um, they finally changed the name of um, the Washington Redskins. So, yep. like, these derogatory well, Ed- Edmonton terms, Eskimos, same thing. Yes, they did the same thing. So these are derogatory terms that were applied to Indigenous people. So why, and now that we know 
because we're in the 21st century, why would we continue doing that? Why would we continue using those names, whether it's Dundas or Ryerson or Cornwallis? Why not tell the whole story? And we need to tell the whole story because if we look at Indigenous communities today, um, you see some of the issues that we're dealing with, like under the Indian Act, because the Indian Act is still there, then you can see the beginnings of this um, in the beginning of colonialism and the policies and the laws that the government placed on us that led to poverty, that led to the residential schools, that led to loss of language and culture, and why, you know, Justice Sinclair in the Truth and Reconciliation Report said this was cultural genocide. And people don't like that word either, because, again, you could say, oh, you're applying something from the 1940s that arose after World War II to us, but the... um, but it meets all the criteria, like there's, and it's still happening. Like we still suffer the impact of residential school. You know, we're still experiencing racism and discrimination. We're still on reserves. The Indian Act still exists. All of those things are still there. So I think we need to tell the whole story. I think that's really important to have an understanding of how Canada was formed. I mean, look at when we say land acknowledgments. When we say in Nova Scotia where Dalhousie University, for example, is situated on the unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. Unceded. We never gave it up. So what do we do? What happens? How do we rectify that? So there's a lot of issues. And the names, I think, are one element of that process towards reconciliation and telling the whole story. And, and, and as you mentioned, it's not changing history. It's, it's exposing no. history, which, which right. is a, a stark difference. Uh, yeah, you know, and the more I read about this, and you know, I'm trying to put this into a broader context here, mm-hmm. people of, of those generations and, you know, that were responsible for these things, uh, for the most part were the same people. You know, we, we, we talked about, for instance, you know, the situation with, uh, with uh, Dundas and, and uh, as, yeah. as in, in the, the, the argument about abolition. But with indigenous right. peoples, uh, with black people that they brought over as slaves, uh, with Asians who were used as as, as slaves almost in, in labor right. in in the, the western provinces and the western states, the pro, the concern here that we have, and the stark reality, Patty, that we have to face here is the the people that were in charge, the white people that were in charge then, basically looked at all of them as as less than human. And 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 you, I'm sure your mother told you stories. We've had survivors from uh, these residential yeah. schools on, and and that's what they were told. Your language is wrong. Your culture is wrong. Yeah. Your religion is wrong. You will do it our way. That's right. and, and this is. And, it, they used to it, tell the kids, your parents are going to hell because they're heathen, pagan, savages, and you don't want to be like that. It's like mm-hmm. you don't want to go to hell. You don't want you know. I mean, when I went to Catholic school, I had a nun that you had a charred up on the wall that when she punished us for something, she told us how many minutes we're going to spend in purgatory or hell. I mean, so that happened in the 60s and 70s, so God knows what it was like in the 20s and 30s, but they, you know, those were some of the things that they did, and you weren't allowed to speak your language, you weren't allowed to go home. Um, When my mother was in residential school, I was, um, she told us a lot of the stories, um, But then when I was doing my research on my master's thesis, I went to Ottawa to the archives, and I found a letter that the Indian agent had written on behalf of my grandfather asking for his children, my mother and her siblings, to come home. And she never knew that he had written a letter. So there was, you know, know, and then people were kind of, um, you know, like my mother never, she never spoke, 
she knew Mi'kmaq language, but she never taught it to my sister and I because she always told us that, you know, it's not going to do you any good. Like, you need to speak English. And now here I am, you know, taking a class in Mi'kmaq Adele so that I can learn the language better. Um, So it's been a long recovery process, I think, for trying to get back those things that we were told were heathen, pagan, savage, going to hell type of activities like speaking your language. I mean, you know, North America is, is, is a, well, you can call it a mosaic, you can call it a, a melting pot, whatever you want, a phraseology, but, you know, historically we all came from someplace, you know, whether it was Europe, as so many of them did, or, or other places in those and, and And the people applaud themselves for saying, well, I'm proud of my Italian-Canadian heritage, or my yeah. Irish-Canadian yeah. heritage, or my British-Canadian heritage, and we celebrate that, you know, and we love to carry on yeah. with their customs, yet they, they revile people in indigenous communities for trying to hang on to theirs. I know. And then they'll say, well, why don't you just get over it? Like, why can't you get over it? Well, it's still happening. It's still happening. We're still under the uh, oppression of the Indian Act. We're still living on reserves. We still have extreme poverty. Um, you know, and then most times you only hear the stories about people who are, um, like in the United States, for instance, where they have casinos and they make tons of money off casinos. But there's still a lot of communities that aren't in that boat. And when you think about this non-human perspective, I mean, even when the Europeans first came here um, way back, um, they in the 1400s, there was a debate in European um, society about whether we were actually human or not. And that came out of the Doctrine of Discovery, where they established a process where whatever European country got there first would have first dibs on the territory without any regard to the people that lived there because they weren't sure that we were people. And this Pope is... still hasn't apologized for that. No, I know. I know, and I know there's a or delegation. There's a there's a delegation heading over to Rome. We're told sometime in the, later yes, this year. In December, Good luck yeah. with it. Good luck with that, uh, Patty. We got to break it off. We're tight for time. Okay. Uh, let's stay in touch. There's a lot more to talk about here, and a lot okay. more to be done. But I really yes, do appreciate you your though. time today. Appreciate you having me. Take care. Bye bye. You too, Patty Doyle Bedwell, who's a Native Studies instructor at Dalhousie University out in Halifax. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.